Well, good morning. How are you guys doing over here? Hey, what about this section over here? Y'all doing okay? What about the middle section? Uh-oh, they're doing better than you guys are over here. How about this section over here? Uh-oh, there you go. Oh, man, I this is the rowdy section. I look good. Okay, y'all switch sections. No, I just... Um, I am excited. I am excited about this week. We've only been waiting on Dr. Grady to be here for three years. Can you imagine? I can't imagine what it's like for a woman to be able to have childbirth and wait nine months for the baby. Do you know what I mean? So we've been waiting for you for for three years, Dr. Grady. Um, A couple things that I want to tell you about. At the at the end of our gathering here today, we're going to take up a special offering for Creation Worldview Ministries. Okay, that's Dr. Grady's ministry. Um, he is right now is in five different continents. Five is the number of grace. Grace, absolutely, it's the number of grace. So um, I think he needs to get a couple more under his belt. We might as well. I said, Lord, I don't want to go, but here I am. Send Grady. Send Grady to it. Um, he, he presents a mission that we're going to, I'm going to present to you today, a missionary teacher, Dr. Grady McMurtry, a biblical scientific creationist. Some of you know his testimony and his story of how, um, he was an evolutionist and, and simply began to start proving the Bible wrong and then found out he couldn't prove the Bible wrong. Science will be continually proven some of science will continually prove and reaffirm what's in the word of god hello but how many of you know that god created it he's he's in the middle of it he's involved in it and sometimes scientists don't have it all figured out he the other way that we can help number one is we're going to be able to take up an offering for him number two is to be able to help with the resources back here i want to encourage you with the resources back here if you're serious If you really want to prove to somebody that the earth is not billions of years old, but about 6,000 years old, that'll be a mind test. Some people, they're like, no, no, I saw it on the Discovery Channel that it was, you know, so many billions years old. We can actually prove, Grady can actually prove to you that scientifically that that's not true. So there is a lot of material over there and for there. There is material not only for uh, ages 2 to 10 years old. There is CDs. There's DVDs. Um, He will be glad to sign a book, and he won't charge you to sign a book. Now, we were having dinner last night, and we were talking to him, and and he said, now, if you want to pay for the signature, he'll give you the book free. And Pastor Linda, she's sharp. Pastor Linda, she's sharp. She says, well, how much is the signature going to (laughs) cost? And I said, oh, okay. He said the same. The same as the book, the signature, whatever that might be. And those of you that are scientifically bent, scientifically bent, that, that, that want to be able to get his newsletter, um, see Grady about that because um, he puts out a newsletter. We get it. In fact, the last newsletter that I read, he had been in his 49th time to Russia as a missionary, but he's been a few other times. He shared that with, with that with me. But there's a couple things that he's going to talk about today. And it's, and the one, one of them that I think I want to encourage you guys to get, it's this one right here. It's how do you date a rock? How do you date a rock? Ladies that are single, he's not talking about that, that kind of dating, okay? Um, how do you date a rock? This is going to be his message this morning, but you're only going to get... Know, Oh, tonight, excuse me. This is going to be his message tonight, but you're only going to get a thumbnail of it because there's a whole lot more in this right here. And also, I want to encourage you to get the Feasts of the Old Testament. 
This right here has been an updated material from three years ago. Um, but I want you to be able to take a look at it. What interests you, he's got it over there. Whatever interests you within the category of science, he has got it over there. How many of you know we have got to learn how to discuss with others? The scripture says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. knowledge. And Grady's going to help bring forth this knowledge. Let's give him a great big warm Woodward, Oklahoma welcome for Dr. Grady McMurtry. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, good morning. Apparently not. I, that wasn't nearly strong enough. Come on. The Bible says this is the morning the Lord has made. You shall. That's a commandment. It's not an option. So let's try. Now, I know you guys are doing real good, but I'm trying to work on these fellows over here. You know? so, try it one more time now. Good morning. They're getting better. They're getting, there's hope. Okay. Well, first of all, I was getting a little concerned about Pastor Eric because he was little snippets of things I'm going to be talking about during the week. He was working with all those things he was talking about. And I'm going, I'm wondering if he's going to preach my message here in a second. But but there were little little snippets in there. There were little snippets in there. But what we're going to be doing is this morning we're going to be talking about from Noah's Ark to the cross. The reason for that is, remember Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday are coming up soon, right? So the message this morning is in preparation for that time. And I want you to remember the teaching for a couple of weeks from now because it will be so significant to you then. Now, tonight we are going to be talking about what is arguably the single most important subject scientifically when it comes to the acceptance of creation or evolution. That is the issue of time. Now, I did a presentation on the issue of time for you before, but this is a different one, so that there's so much material. We have over 300 scientific arguments that the Earth and the universe are only 6,000 years old. Remember that evolutionists do not even have one scientific argument. I would like to comment about something that Pastor said as well. Remember, science, science says nothing. There are scientists who believe in evolution and scientists who believe in creation. And so you've got two different groups of scientists, right? I'm in that group. I used to be an evolutionist, but now I'm a creationist. Obviously, I was willing to learn, therefore I was willing to change. Hello. But if you're not willing to learn, you'll never be willing to change. Is that correct? So I was an educatable evolutionist. Do you like that word? I was educatable. Hello. But I was willing to learn, therefore I was willing to change. Now, tomorrow night, uh, you know, we're not repeating anything that I have ever done for you before. I've been here twice before. I've done ten subjects before you before. The five subjects this week are new, different. It's not a repeat of anything we've done before. Tomorrow night, some of you uh, feel like you already know how to teach the subject. Uh, but believe me, I, I, I can add to your knowledge. It's going to be on how did people used to live to be 900 years old. I notice a couple of you probably think you can teach that message, but I'm, I'm going to do a job tomorrow night, okay? Hello? Because remember what Pastor said. The world is asking good questions. If you don't have good answers to good questions, the world has no reason to pay any attention to you at all. And the Bible clearly says that before the flood, men averaged 912 years of age. Of course, you've got to take out two. Lamech, who uh, died early at 770. We'll discuss that tomorrow night. Uh, you know, y'all need more caffeine before you come to church. And, of course, Enoch was taken alive to heaven. But if you take out those two, they average 912 years old. Today we are only living one-tenth as long as people used to live. And people are going to say, how can you possibly believe that? Well, 
I understand the problem, but we can show you it is absolutely true. I'm going to show you 19 specific reasons, scientifically and medically, that would have allowed people to live to be 900 years old under the conditions that existed from creation of the flood. Remember that we have DVDs and books about all these things as well if you want additional material. Now, on Tuesday night, we're going to talk about people and dinosaurs did, capital D, capital I, capital D, live together. We're going to show you reliable human history. We're going to show you art, artifacts, and at the end, we're even going to discuss how you can have fire-breathing, appearing dinosaurs or dragons. Hello? And on Wednesday night, we're going to talk about the eternal, infinite value of human life. If you know anybody, anybody that has a problem with their own value, worth, esteem, you want to be sure they're here on Wednesday night. Because I'm going to show you that every one of us has eternal and infinite value in God's eyes. And uh, the pro-life people will particularly like it. <laughs> Hello. Well, this morning we do want to talk about From the Ark to the Cross. Now, this message we have on DVD, it's part of my book on the feast, as Pastor showing you and so forth. But to, to start with this, why should it be so important to you? I want to ask a question for everybody, and please remember, Pastor is listening. Hello? Uh, all Christians are called to share the faith in Christ with others, right? That was pretty weak, wasn't it? I mean, that was pathetic, right? And I'm going to give him a second chance. Is that okay with you? I said, look, pastor is listening. Hello? All Christians are called to share their faith in Christ with others, right? right. See, that was much better. You, just need, you guys just need a little rehearsal is all, right? But let me ask you a question. Now, understand something. We are all called to share our faith in Christ with others. But how many of you have had a response like this when you've attempted to do it? You've been talking to somebody and they said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, if you could just prove to me that God existed then I'd be willing to believe. Have any of you ever had that? You know, if you could just prove to me God existed, then I would be willing to believe, right? You've had some conversation like that. Well, this morning I want to prove to you that you can. I'm going to give you a tool that you can use in witnessing. Now, it's only one of many tools, but this is a tool you can use. And so I'm going to give you a tool that you'll be able to use in your witnessing to prove to people that God really does exist, that he's actively working throughout human history, that he can bring about events to occur at any time he chooses to do so. With that in mind, I'm going to ask you a second question. I want you to tell me, in your own mind, do you think it would be humanly possible, in your own humanity, do you think it would be humanly possible to make a legally binding contract with another human being who will not even be alive until 2,500 years after you're dead. Okay, I know it's not the kind of question you woke up thinking about this morning. <laughs> but I'll ask the question again. Do you think it would be possible to make a legally binding contract with another human being who will not even be alive until 2,500 years after you're dead? Come on, you can say no. It's okay. No, it just wouldn't be possible, correct? You, you wouldn't know their name. You wouldn't know they were going to be born. If you left a contract behind, how do you know they would find it? Ask any archaeologist. A lot of stuff gets lost in 2,500 years. Hello? And even if they found it, what reason would they have to fulfill the contract? You've been dead for 2,500 years. Doesn't it say in the Bible that a pharaoh rose up in Egypt only after a couple hundred years that did not know Joseph? Is that right? Who's he? He's nobody to me. Well, what about 2,500 years later? Hello? It's just not possible. Is that correct? 
Human beings cannot coordinate with each other over thousands of years, even hundreds of years of time. Is that correct? Well, let's take a look and show how we can prove that God exists and that he is actively working throughout human history. With that in mind, would you please open up the convenience store verse of the Bible with me? Come on, I taught about this here before. The convenience store verse of the Bible, that's Genesis 7-11. Oh, I hear that moaning and groaning. Hey, look, no teacher's taught till a student has learned. Will you forget the convenience store verse of the Bible again? No. Let's take a look at Genesis 7-11. Now, you will notice, and I've taught in the flood here before, but you'll notice Noah was 600 years old at the beginning of the flood. He was just middle age. Remember, tomorrow night we're going to talk about how people live to be 900, right? So at 600, he was just at middle age. And God called him into the ministry when he was only 480 years old. So is it ever too late to be called into the ministry? Come on, folks. When I ask questions, I'm looking for a response. If Noah was 480, is it ever too late to be called into the ministry? No. No. And then it says the flood began on the 17th day of the second month. So what time of the year was that? I see you've forgotten after all these years already. What, 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 what 17th day of the second month? What time of the year was that? Excuse me? Well, I heard somebody say February 17th, and I can understand why you would say that, of course. It's not right, but I can understand why you would say it. Uh, anybody else? Oh, I'm starting, to, I'm starting to get seasonal answers now. Hello? Well, see, what, what I'm trying to point out to you is that's not our calendar. Nowhere in the Bible do you have the Julian or the Gregorian calendar that we use today. And in the book of Genesis, the only calendar you have is called the Jewish civil calendar. It begins with a feast or festival of the Old Testament called Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah means chief or head of the year in Hebrew. It's New Year's Day, uh, as we would say it. But it occurs in mid to late September, the way you and I count time. And so we know that the flood actually begins when? Well, if the year begins in mid to late September, on the 17th day of the second month, then we start in mid to late September. We add one month, mid to late October, correct? We add 17 days. We're talking about roughly the first week in November. And so we know that the flood of Noah actually occurs starting about the first week in November. Now would you please turn to Genesis 8, 4. Genesis 8, verse 4. It says that the ark landed not on top of Mount Ararat. No, no, no. Not on top of Mount Ararat, in the area, the region of Ararat. Remember that Ararat is a 19,000-foot-high volcano. Not a good place to land a wooden vessel. Hello? But notice it says that it landed on the 17th day of the seventh month. Is that correct? Now, the seventh month of the Jewish civil calendar is called the month of Nisan, N-I-S-A-N, Nisan. And, of course, well, let's think about when did it actually come. I, I See, Pastor was teaching little snippets of my message. I got really worried about all this. Um, does anybody here know why there are 360 degrees in a circle? You, you don't? You just, you were taught it in school. You went, I know the answer to the quiz question, and that's it, huh? But wouldn't it be more logical? I mean, we have a 10-base system. Wouldn't it be more logical if we had uh, what, 100 degrees or 400 degrees in a circle? Wouldn't that be more logical? But why are there 360? It's really quite simple. Because when you go back to Genesis, go back to chapter 1, God started his calendar with 12 months. That's why we still have 12 months today. 
And each month of the Jewish civil calendar has exactly 30 days. You don't have 28, 29, 31. It's always 30. And 12 months times 30 days equals 360 days. And that's why there's 360 degrees in a circle. Things occurred at the time of the flood, which caused the rotation rate of the earth to change slightly. Today, 365 and a quarter, but originally it was 360. And take a look at the last verse of chapter 7 of Genesis. Notice it says that the waters of the flood rose, prevailed, continued to rise, depends on your translation, for exactly 150 days. Is that correct? Well, that would be exactly five months. Do you see how I was worried about pastor? You know, Because five in the Bible is a number associated with grace, correct? And so let's think. God sent a worldwide flood covering the entire earth in judgment, only those who were in the ark, the animals and the people, survived. Everybody else on the dry land perished, correct? But after the water rising for five months, 150 days, in God's grace, he stops the waters rising. The ark comes to rest. But if you read chapter 8, you'll notice it says the waters then went down for 150 days. That's another five months, correct? So the earth is covered with water for exactly 10 months or 300 days, correct? Now, in the Bible, 10 is associated with perfect spiritual completion. Think with me. Why are there 10 commandments? It's the perfect number of commandments to accomplish God's law. Why were there 10 plagues in Egypt? It's the perfect number of plagues to accomplish God's purposes in Egypt. And the earth was covered for exactly 10 months, the perfect amount of time for the earth to be covered with water. But you'll also notice it's 300 days. Now, in the Bible, you see 300 in terms of spiritual victory and conflict. I mean, how many men did Gideon get down to? 300. And uh, how long was the ark? Come on, folks, that's a gimme, okay? Come on, 300 cubits, right? And then, of course, the earth is covered for 300 days by water. Now, just to show you, I also want to give you a strong warning, and this is a strong warning. Never take numbers in the Bible beyond what they're intended to mean. Are, are you with me? But numbers in the Bible do have significance. There's a proper study of what is called theomatics, the, the mathematics of God. But never take it beyond what it's intended to mean. Okay? Now, we all agree that the ark came to rest on the 17th day of the month of Nisan. Is that right? Chapter 8, Genesis? Excellent. Now, it's exactly... 150 days after the flood began. So if the flood begins in about the first week of November, then the waters rise and stop rising in the spring five months later, which would be about the end of March or early April, correct? Right? Now, with that in mind, please turn to the book of the Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Now, this is 2,500 years after creation. You know, Moses and Joshua, they're living 1,900 to 1,000 years after creation, uh, after the flood, excuse me. So the flood is 1,656 years after creation. They're living about 900 years after the flood. So it's basically 2,500 years since creation, correct? And in chapter 12 of Exodus, this is the time of, you know, God raising up Moses. It's the time of let my people go, correct, from the Egyptian captivity. Everybody kind of remembers this, right? Now, let's think about this for a minute. God raises up Moses. Now, he raises up Moses up for 40 
years in the house of Pharaoh. I mean, he arranges things so that Moses lives for the first 40 years of his life in the house of Pharaoh. Now, why did God do that? It's very simple. God wanted Moses to have the finest education money can buy. Did you hear that? Moses was a highly intelligent, highly educated man. He had 40 years of the finest education possible to get in that time. And I'm not a prophet, and I am not the son of a prophet, I assure you, but I have a prophetic word for you. You know what God wants for the United States right now? He wants highly educated young men and women who can articulate the Christian faith intelligently, that have not only just one degree, but two, three. I mean, I've got two doctorates. You don't have to do that. But the fact of the matter is, God wants articulate, intelligent young men and women who can actually argue for the truth of the Christian faith from an intellectual standpoint. You don't understand, perhaps, but the intellectual heritage belongs to the church. It doesn't belong to the secularists. It belongs to us. If it had not been for the church, you wouldn't even know much of the ancient history. The church not only saved the word of God, it preserved the history of the world. Hello? And the great heritage of the Christian faith is in the intellect. What does it say? How are we to worship God? We're to worship God in spirit and truth. It is a two-part process, 50-50. We're real good, 50% of the spirit. But how many of you are real good at the 50% truth and knowledge? Hello? And so that's what God wants. And, and God raises up 40 years, Moses in the house of Pharaoh, to get the finest education money could buy. Then he sends him out into the wilderness for 40 years to learn how to raise sheep and goats. Now, this was in order to prepare Moses to be a pastor. Pastor smiling. You may not see it, but I can. Uh, hello? Yeah, 40 years to learn how to raise sheep and goats. That was to prepare him to be a pastor, correct? At the age of 80, he sends him back into Egypt with the message, it's time to let my people go, correct? Now, in the first nine plagues, God is dealing with the Egyptians personally. I just recently added a section to my book on the feast where I talk about all ten gods, who they are, what they look like, why they were attacked, and why they were attacked in the order they were attacked. God is a perfect general. Hello? And he starts by attacking the Egyptians on the outside, and it works in in concentric circles, destroying them and humbling to the point of starvation, and destroying everything, including their religion. He's a perfect general. Hello? Now, the first nine plagues, God is dealing with the uh, Egyptians on a one-to-one basis. But in the tenth plague, he gets the people involved. So let me ask you a question. What was the tenth plague? Come on, folks. You can talk. It's okay. I'm from out of town. Hello? Come on, way out of town. Hello? So what was the first plague? Or the tenth, excuse me? Okay, well, I, I keep hearing kind of snippets and so forth, but let's get it correct. It is not the death of the firstborn male. It is the death of the firstborn male that opens the womb. That's the Hebrew. The death of the firstborn male, that opens the womb. If a sister was born first and the son second, it doesn't count. Hello? And it's all the people and all the livestock. Now, Goodness only knows, Oklahoma is a great place to teach this stuff, and I have deep roots in this area. Think with me for just a moment. First of all, 
men in the Old Testament often had more than one wife. Is that correct? Come on, especially pharaohs. Okay, look, folks. Uh, Ramesses II, the greatest pharaoh of Egypt, reigned for 62 years. Now, he had 52 sons. Do you think he had only one wife? Hello? I mean, we've actually found a tomb where all 52 of his sons were buried, but he had 106 children. Now, you think you got problems. Hello? Now, he was not the pharaoh of Moses, but I'm just trying to give you an example here. But, but also, also remember, pharaohs had more than one wife. Is that correct? And goodness only knows, you ought to know this very well. You have only one bull for many ladies. Is that correct? Right? So when it says the death of the firstborn male, that opens the womb, I want you to think about this. Pharaoh lost more than one son that night. And think about the carnage. Remember, the firstborn male that opens the womb of all the livestock. Hello? You have never, never fathomed the degree of death in Egypt until you start contemplating this. And another thing, too, you have to understand that the Hebrew way of thinking about time, God's way of thinking about time, the one he taught them, is different than ours. Now, for instance, we change the date at midnight, correct? But that's not the way it works in Judaism. In Judaism, in the Old Testament, the date actually changes in the early evening. It's defined as moon rise, but it's actually 90 minutes after sunset. This goes back to Genesis chapter 1, because God says the day begins in darkness and ends in light. I want you to think about this. Even the rotation of the earth teaches us spiritual truth, because we are all born in darkness. But if we come to know him, we will end in light. Is that correct? So even the rotation rate of the earth actually teaches the biblical truth. And so the day must start in darkness. Well, it is not dark until 19 minutes after sunset. It cannot be twilight. It has to be dark. You with me? So the date changes not at midnight the way you and I do it. The date changes in the early evening, 19 minutes after sunset. So with that in mind, please take a look at Exodus chapter 12. And notice that in the first two verses, God speaks to Aaron and to Moses, and he says, I want you to make this month the first month of a brand new calendar. It's a calendar for the purpose of religious events. Many Christians fail to understand a lot of really deep, rich biblical truth because they fail to understand that there are two calendars and not one. There is the civil calendar that begins in mid to late September every year, but there's the religious calendar, because when God says, could we turn off the phones? Thank you. Um, I don't want to dance a jig. Now, hello? When God says this month, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, he's talking about this seventh month, the month of Nisan, the seventh month of the civil calendar. 2,500 years after creation, God takes the seventh month, makes it the first month of the religious calendar, which also goes for 12 months. And there are two calendars exactly six months apart, the civil calendar and then the religious calendar. So first of all, God changes and institutes a religious calendar in the spring of the year, making Nisan the first month of the religious calendar. But now continue to look at verses 3, 4, 5, 6. Notice he says this, 
on the tenth day of the month of Nisan, in the spring of the year, he tells the people to select a lamb, one for each household, correct? Then he tells them on the fourteenth day of the month at exactly 3 p.m. Now, your translation, perhaps, you might have between the evenings, but remember that words change time over time, and today it would read between the afternoons, but what that means is 3 p.m. There's the early afternoon, the late afternoon, and this means 3 p.m. And so he says on the 14th day of the month, at exactly 3 p.m., I want you to slay the lamb, apply the blood to the doorposts and to the lentil, correct? Come on, many of you are familiar with this, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I think they were in a hurry. How about you? Come on, folks. If that thing's just coming by in about three hours, I think they're in a hurry. How about you? So they're dealing with blood, not paint. It's going to coagulate quickly. They're using an ancient form of paintbrush called a hyssop plant. And I don't know about you, but I don't think they're trying to stay in between the lines, do you? Hello? So then they kind of go, splat, 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 you know? But let me ask you a question. When they go splat on the lentil, wouldn't there be a moment in time when some of that blood dripped on the threshold, right? And you would want blood on the threshold, wouldn't you? Come on, wouldn't you? Look, do you want the death angel sliding in under the door? This is called a bad idea. Hello? And what I want you to see that in Egypt, the blood was here, 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 and here. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. In Egypt, the blood was here, 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 and here. Is that correct? And sealed behind the door with the blood on all four sides, that evening they're going to eat the lamb. Now, I'm going to ask you to help me count, okay? I want everybody to help me count. If you can wave for pastor, you can count for me, okay? So... God tells them on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, in the spring of the year, they're going to apply the blood from the sacrificed lamb. Now, that evening, the moon is going to rise. The date is going to change. Now, if they slay the lamb at 3 p.m. on the 14th, that evening becomes the 15th. And on the 15th, behind the door, sealed with the blood on all four sides, they're going to eat the lamb. That's the first sign of communion in the Bible is the third sacrifice of Leviticus 1 through 6. It's called the peace, the communion, or the thanksgiving offering. And so they are going to do the communion offering. Then about midnight, after the death angel has passed through the land, what happens? Pharaoh calls Moses into the palace. He surrenders. After, after the firstborn male that opens the womb of everybody dies, he surrenders says, I surrender. You, got, I, you can go. Now, they were told to eat the Passover with their shoes on, ready to go, right? They start walking southeast in the middle of the night. About 6 a.m., on the morning of the 15th day of Nisan, men are sent from the main column to a town in the Bible called Succoth. But it's actually the word in Hebrew, Sukkot. But in English, it's the word tabernacle. And men are sent to the town of Tabernacle to pick up the body of Joseph that has been waiting for them to take him home. The body of Joseph was at the town of Tabernacle. I don't know about you, but I think that dog will hunt. How about you? Right? And they pick up the body of Joseph. They rejoin the main column. They walk the rest of that day, which is the 15th. Now, that evening, they stop. They make camp. The moon rises. The day changes. It becomes the 16th. So they sleep that night, the 16th. They get up. They walk the rest of the day, which is the 16th. That evening, they stop. They make camp. The moon rises. The day changes. It becomes the 
17th. Only that night, they have their backs to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh chases after them. It's a night of the 17th day of Nisan that God performed the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. Now, I have to insert something here because of something the pastor said earlier. And all of you, please say a big, loud, hearty amen after my next statement. Never, ever get your education from government-run television, National Geographic, Learning Channel, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, or Hollywood. Amen. How many of you have ever seen The Party in the Red Sea in a Hollywood-made movie? Come on, Charlton Heston? The Younger Ones, Prince of Egypt? <laughs> Thank you. Did you ever know in Hollywood when they show you The Party in the Red Sea, there's this little slit in the middle of the Red Sea? Hello? What a joke. What a joke. Do you realize that, well, probably all but maybe five of people in this room could do the math right now. In order to get a million and a half to four million people through that hole in less than six hours, the hole in the Red Sea had to be at least five miles wide. Are you listening? When God performed the miracle of the part of the Red Sea, he kind of like parted the Red Sea. That hole had to be at least five miles wide. And it's the night of the 17th. In Corinthians, it tells us the nation of Israel was baptized by walking through the waters of the Red Sea. As they walked down with the waters above them on either side, they were being baptized by walking through the waters of the Red Sea, resurrected out of the Red Sea onto the Sinai Peninsula to go on to the Promised Land, correct? But what happened to the Egyptians who tried to follow in behind them? They perished, is that correct? So the waters of the Red Sea were waters of baptism to the believer, but waters of judgment to the unbeliever, is that correct? And I want you to think about why were the Jews legally free to leave Egypt? Remember, what was the deal? The deal was, we're going to go out in the desert for three days, worship God, and then what? We're going to come back, right? I mean, the whole story of the Exodus is, we're going to go out in the desert for three days, worship God, and then we're going to come back, Correct. But Pharaoh will not allow them to. He tries to bargain with them and so forth. But eventually, well, eventually God convinces us Pharaoh. Is that right? But I want you to think about this. Why were they legally free? Now, it is easy for all of us to remember that the Jews were slaves in Egypt at that time. But remember, initially they were not. Initially they were not slaves in Egypt, right? They were honored guests to begin with. But yes, they were slaves in Egypt, but what many people don't remember is this. At the time of the Exodus, everybody in Egypt personally belonged to Pharaoh, with only two exceptions, his family and the priesthood. After that, everybody in Egypt personally belonged to Pharaoh. Think with me. It goes back to Joseph. Remember how Joseph came to power in Egypt through the God-given gift of the interpretation of dreams, Correct. He said there's going to be seven really good years and seven very lean years. Now, any farmer around here knows about that kind of stuff, right? So what happened? Well, during the seven good years, Pharaoh bought up the grain. It was cheap, plentiful. Then what happened next? During the seven lean years, he sold it back to the people at a high price. I mean, let's face it. Pharaoh was not a nice guy, but he was a good capitalist. And besides that, he had a Jewish storekeeper. Hello? Right? Buy low, sell high, right? But during the seven lean years, what happened? The people had to go to Pharaoh to buy food, and they gave him all their money. Then they came back and gave them their livestock and the land. And the last thing that happened was this. We have nothing left to sell you but ourselves. And they sold themselves to Pharaoh 
and they were his personal property. So the Jews were slaves within the population, but the entire population personally belonged to Pharaoh, correct? And why were the Jews legally free to leave? Well, first of all, let's think about this. Pharaoh chased after them after only two days. Is that correct? So Pharaoh was in breach of contract, correct? Pharaoh broke his own contract. He said you can go for three. He chases after them after only two. And tell me, when, well, we use the word Pharaoh in Egypt. Yeah, I just came back from Russia. We use the word Tsar. But in English, we use the word king. But tell me, when a king dies, who inherits his property? Excuse me? Well, his oldest son, the crown prince, typically the firstborn son, is that correct? But what just happened to him? Oh, he's dead. So the one who made the contract with them had broken his own contract. The one who couldn't inherit them was dead. Isn't it interesting how God crosses T's and dots I's? This is why they were legally free to leave Egypt. Hello? And it's on this exact same date of the calendar, the 17th day of Nisan, that the ark came to rest in Genesis 8 4. Is that right? Now, when you think about the Old Testament Bible and the use of the word ark, you will think of two or three uses of the word ark. There's the ark of Noah. There's the ark of the bulrushes of the baby Moses floating down the Nile. You might have that one. And there's the ark of the covenant, correct? But in Hebrew, there's only two words. The ark of Noah technically means an object made for floating, which, of course, is what the ark of Noah did, correct? However, the ark of the covenant is a totally different word in Hebrew. It means a piece of furniture, which is what it was, a wood box covered in gold, correct? But would you agree with me, words often have more than one meaning, one usage, one nuance. Is that correct? And the word Ark of Noah, which does mean an object made for floating, can also be correctly translated with the word coffin. C-O-F-F-I-N. Coffin. Now, why would the Ark of Noah be referred to as a coffin? Well, when you think of a coffin, don't you normally think of a large, rectangular, wooden box, correct? And what was the shape of the Ark of Noah? It was a large, rectangular, wooden box. It looked just like a coffin on the outside. And in your own life, had you ever noticed how God would often use opposite logic to the way you and I do things? Okay, I'll repeat the question. Had you ever noticed in your own life how God will often use opposite logic to the way you and I would do things? Yes? Now, when you think of a coffin, don't you normally think of death inside and life outside? Come on, folks, that is the way you do it around here, right? Some of you have me worried. But, but let's think about what was the opposite logic which God used at the time of the flood? He took the seeds of life, placed them inside the coffin, he condemned the world outside to death. Is that correct? And as the ark is floating in the water, we, we have a teaching on this. The ark, and believe me, there have been studies done on this at laboratories. It would sink halfway into the water. There would be tremendous waves pounding on the sides during the first half of the flood. And there's 40 days and 40 nights on top initially, correct? I think you'll agree the ark was wet. Hello? So can we not make an argument that the eight people inside were being baptized in the waters of the flood? That when the ark came to rest, the seeds of life inside the coffin were resurrected into a new world. Is that correct? It's exactly the same day of the calendar that they will be baptized in the Red Sea. Is that right? God has a theme for the 17th day of Nisan. It is the theme of baptism, or I'm going to use the word internment. 
Because what happens when we baptize somebody in water? We intern them in the water, and then we raise them back up, symbology of death, burial with Jesus, and resurrection, correct? But, but, but we intern you in the water and raise you up because we want you to breathe. Hello? Right? So let's think. The theme, at the time of the ark and at the time of the Red Sea, the theme of baptism in water or internment and resurrection, correct? Y'all are not very enthusiastic at the moment. Well, tell you what, let me give you a third example. Would you turn to the book of Joshua with me for a moment? The book of Joshua, we want to take a look, and I will give you the verses. Verse 3.15, verse 4.19, and chapter 5, verses 10, 11, and 12. So that's chapter 3, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 19, chapter 5, verses 10, 11, and 12. Now, this is the time at which Joshua will lead the people into the promised land. You know, Moses and Joshua lead the people up to the river, but what's going to happen? Well, if you take a look at Joshua 4.19, you'll notice it says, on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. That is exactly 40 years to the day they chose the Lamb in Egypt. Is that correct? Take a look at Joshua 3.15. It says the river Jordan was flooded at that time of the year, but we would know it was flooded whether the Bible told us or not. God simply puts it there for emphasis. Because this is the spring of the year. This is when the Jordan River is at its deepest, its widest, its fastest in the spring. This is when the snow melt is coming down from Mount Hermon. And it's coming down the Jordan River. And in the spring of the year, the river is going to be at its deepest, its widest, its fastest, correct? And the Bible even tells us to be sure we know. Now, do you remember how they entered into the Promised Land? Do you remember that Joshua told the priests, I want you to pick up the Ark of the Covenant and I want you to walk into the river, correct? And I also want you to think about this. What also had happened 38 and a half years earlier? Because 38 and a half years earlier, there had been the sin of unbelief or disbelief in the camp. God had judged the people. And he said, only those the age of 20 or less, only those born after that experience, and the two men of faith, Caleb and Joshua, that's Old Testament terminology for baptized in the Holy Spirit, a special spirit of faith. And only they would enter into the promised land. All the nation that had sinned older than 20 would perish. Even Moses died in the desert. Is that correct? Oh. So, let's think. A new nation had been born in the desert for 38 and a half years, correct? And at the time that they go through the Jordan, Joshua tells the priest, pick up the Ark of the Covenant and walk into the river. It's a flooded, raging torrent. When the priest looked at that in the natural, they said, if we walk into that, we are gone. Hello? But at the word of God, given through the man of God to the people of God, they took a step of faith. Is that correct? And they walked into the Jordan. And once they had taken the step of faith, God performed a miniature version miracle of what he did at the Red Sea, correct? He parted the Jordan, and they went across on dry land, correct? Now, that's exactly 40 years to the day they selected the lamb in Egypt, correct? Then if we read Joshua chapter 5, verses 10, 11, and 12, Eunice, it says this, They celebrated the Passover, and on the day after they ate the lamb, God would have the last day of providing them manna, correct? Now, 
let's think. First of all, a new nation had been born in the desert, and before they could go into the promised land, what had to happen? Come on, what had to happen? They had to be baptized. They were baptized in one day by walking through the waters of the Jordan River, correct? Oh, they had to be baptized before they could walk into the promised land. And when it says they celebrated the Passover, this is only the third Passover in human history. It has been 40 years, but it is only the third Passover. The first Passover was in Egypt. The second Passover was one year later at Mount Sinai, but for 38 years they did not celebrate the Passover because for 38 years they didn't have the elements. They didn't eat matzah and lamb for 38 years. They were eating manna and birds, correct? They could not celebrate the Passover for 38 years, and besides that, God was with them anyway, right? <laughs> but in the 40th year, they will enter into the Promised Land on the 10th day of Nisan. And this will be the third Passover in human history. Now, according to the law of Moses, the Lamb must be slain at exactly 3 p.m. on the afternoon of the 14th, correct? Uh, hello? Come on, I didn't lose you yet, did I? Remember, we have a DVD and a, and a book on this. If you can't take the notes fast enough, we got them for you. So they were told to, to select the lamb on the 10th and sacrifice it on the 14th, correct? So they go through the Jordan River on the 10th. They will then camp for three days of purification, the 11th, 12th, and 13th. But the lamb must be slain on the 14th at exactly 3 p.m., correct? So now, think with me. That evening, the moon rises, the date changes, it becomes the... Come on, folks. If it was the 14th, it becomes the 15th. Thank you very much. And on the 15th, they will celebrate the Passover by eating the lamb, correct? So let's think. The day after you eat the lamb makes it the, come on, if it was the 15th, makes it the 16th. That's the last day God provides manna. On the day after that makes it the 17th. And on the 17th, they ate only of the first fruits of the promised land. If you go to Leviticus chapter 23, all seven major feasts of the Old Testament are there in one chapter. The only chapter of the Bible that has all seven. And it tells you the date of the celebration. It doesn't tell you much about detail, but it tells you the date. And it declares in Leviticus chapter 23 that the 17th day of Nisan, the third major feast of the Old Testament, shall be celebrated on the 17th day of Nisan. But remember that first fruits is interchangeable in the Bible with the term resurrection. Resurrection and first fruits is interchangeable in the Bible. And Jesus often talks about himself being the first fruits offering, does he not? He says, when, not if, you lift me up. And the first fruits offering was a sheaf taken of the freshly germinated barley, lifted up before the Father in a wave offering before the Father, and... Jesus said, if a seed doesn't fall to the ground and die, it won't bring forth a great harvest. Is that correct? Speaking of his own death, burial, and resurrection. Do you remember that at the time of the resurrection, there were Old Testament saints who walked the streets of Jerusalem glorifying God. Is that correct? They were his first fruits offering to the Father. Hello? Now, I have just shown you the ark came to rest. They walked through the Red Sea. They ate the first fruits of the promised land on exactly the same day of the calendar, spread out over 1,000 years of human history. You know, folks, I'm sorry, but that, that normally would make a Baptist say amen. 
I'll give you a second chance. I've just shown you that uh, the ark came to rest. They walked through the Red Sea. They ate the first fruits of the promised land on exactly the same day of the calendar, spread over 1,000 years of human history. Come on, anybody see the hand that got at work here? Oh. Apparently, Pastor, they need one more example. I don't know. Uh, would you please turn to the Gospel of John, Chapter 12? For those of you that are still awake, I know I can put people to sleep, but I also have a gift of getting brains stretched, so we're going to do both. Hello? Yeah, I have a gift of stretching brains. I come into town, I stretch brains. Some of you are going to leave saying, my brain hurts. But, you know, some guys only have a one little word to give. I've got so many I can't say them all. Now, if you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, we want to start with verses 1 and 2. Now, when you read John 12, verses 1 and 2, does your Bible say this? On Friday, the eighth day of Nisan, Jesus walked into the areas of Jerusalem, coming from Jericho. Uh, instead of going to the right to Jerusalem, he goes to the left to the top of the Mount of Olives. And there he visits with Lazarus, the man he raised from the dead. And there they served him an evening meal. Is that what your Bible said? No. Your Bible didn't say that? You mean your Bible says eight? Well, it's six days before the Passover. But the Passover is on the 14th, so what's six days before that? It's the 8th. You see, John is the most specific. You'll find the details in all the Gospels, but John is the most specific. John says, and I will prove to you, it was a Friday afternoon during the daylight hours. He will walk. It takes two days to walk from Jerusalem, actually to Jerusalem, from Jericho, up what's called the Red Ascent. The Samaritan Inn was the one day in the middle. So it takes two days to walk from Jericho up to Jerusalem. So he's coming down for the feast. He comes down the Jordan Valley, stops in Jericho, walks two days up, arrives on a Friday during the daylight on the eighth day of Nisan. John is specific. But instead of going into Jerusalem to the right, he instead turns to the left, walks down along the ridge of the Mount of Olives to Bethany to visit with Lazarus, the man he raised from the dead. Because when he stayed in Jerusalem, he either stayed with Lazarus and the family or with Simon the leper, correct? But it says they served him an evening meal. Now that means it's after the moon rises that evening. So on Friday during the daylight, the eighth day of Nisan, he walks into the area and up to the Mount of Olives. Then the moon rises, the date changes, and it becomes the ninth. But it's Friday night, therefore it is Shabbat. And at Shabbat, as a righteous Jewish male, he cannot leave the Mount of Olives. He cannot go into Jerusalem on the ninth. He must stay there on Friday night and Saturday during the day, the ninth day of Nisan. But Saturday night, the moon rises, the date changes, and it becomes the tenth. And on the tenth day of Nisan that year, which was a Sunday. Now, would you agree with me the tenth day of the month is not always a Sunday? Is that correct? But God had to arrange it so that that year, the 10th day of Nisan, would fall on a Sunday. But think with me. That means he had to calculate this all the way back to Daniel. Think with me. There is no greater prophet in the Bible than Daniel. I mean, when a prophet says that a virgin shall give birth, I think you'll agree that is a wonderful prophecy, magnificent prophecy. But he didn't say when, correct? He just said it would happen. Daniel prophesied exactly 483 years ahead of time, the year, the month, and the day of the month, Jesus would be selected as a lamb. Daniel said Messiah would be cut 
off. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't understand agriculture, you cannot understand 90% of the Bible. The Bible is written in agrarian language to an agrarian people. And when he said cut off, he's using a term we still use in Oklahoma today. To cut off means to remove one individual from a larger number. It means to cut one lamb out of a flock, one steer out of a herd. Don't cowboys still use cutting horses? It's the exact same term Daniel used. 500 years be ahead of time. And when Jesus rides in on a Sunday, the 10th day of Nisan, the day you select the lamb, correct? He fulfills two prophecies. He rides in on a colt that's never been written before. And in proof of Daniel, he is cut off. Because on that Sunday, there were between one-eighth and one-quarter million people in Jerusalem. They looked at 125 to 250,000 people, picked one man, Jesus Christ, and they cut him off. And they said, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They quoted Psalm 18, a messianic psalm. You in English say Hosanna. But that's a Hebrew word. What does it mean in English? What's Hosanna mean in English? Pardon? Oh, no, that's Joshua or Yeshua. No, no. Hosanna means save now. It transliterates to save now. But when you point at an individual person and say it, it's a demonstrative, declarative statement, and it means this. You save us now. You save us now. And in fulfillment of Daniel, they cut him off, chose him as a lamb on Sunday, the 10th day of Nisan. Now, that's the same day they chose the lamb in Egypt. It's the same day they walked through the Jordan River. Is that correct? It's the same day Jesus has selected the lamb. It's what you and I call Palm Sunday. And remember that, that they threw palm branches in front of him. Is that correct? Now, the throwing of clothing was a form of worship. But, but they threw palm branches. Now, you can read the Bible from one end to the other. You will never find palms associated with Passover. But Psalms has, ev palms, excuse me, has everything to do with tabernacles. At tabernacles, you build the sukkahs with palms. You cover the altar of God in front of the temple with palms. Palms have everything to do with tabernacles. And moved to the Holy Spirit, the people took a symbol of tabernacles, moved it ahead six months, and threw them at the feet of Jesus. Hello? Now, let's think. What happens next? They select him as a lamb on the 10th, a Sunday that year, correct? Now, I would say it hasn't been that long since we celebrated Christmas. You know, it's only been, been a few months now. Um, can anybody tell me, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Come on, you can say it out loud. Have a little conviction. Bethlehem, right? In Hebrew, Bethlehem. But what does that mean in English? House of bread. So Beth, Bet, Bet always means house of. Bethel is the house of God, correct? So... Bethlehem is the house of bread. And what is Jesus sometimes called? The bread of life, yes. And therefore, we could say Jesus was born in the bakery. Come on, the bread of life was born at the house of bread. Hello? Now, where did they raise the little lambs for tabernacle and temple worship? Oh, dear. You, you, must, you must learn how to take a test, folks. 
the, the instructor will often give you the answer either in the question as it is being asked or he will give it to you in the previous answer. Where did they raise the little lambs for tabernacle and temple worship? Bethlehem. See how much smarter you are just learning how to take a test, really. I mean, uh, hello, right? Bethlehem. But let's think. Bethlehem. Well, that's the shepherd's fields of a couple named Ruth and Boaz. Is that correct? And they had a grandson who was a shepherd named Jesse. Is that correct? And he had eight sons, the youngest and ruddiest of which we all know his name was David, King David. Now, he was a shepherd raising sheep for tabernacle worship in his lifetime. And 1,000 years later, he'd be the, well, one of his descendants would be the last lamb we would ever need. Is that correct? And on the 10th day of Nisan, they chose Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. Four days later, what did the same crowd say? Crucify him. Crucify him. His blood be upon us and our children. And it is. I want you to think about this, too. Remember that it's Bethlehem where they raised the lambs, correct? What happened on the 10th day of Nisan? Remember, it doesn't matter what day it is of the week. But on the 10th day of Nisan, priests would walk down to to Bethlehem from Jerusalem. You know, here in the United States, we have such a strange idea of size. I mean, again, I have deep roots in Oklahoma. You know what I'm talking about. You know, when I was born, we thought nothing of driving 500 miles just to visit the neighbors. Hello? We have such a different idea of size in the United States. I mean, I drove here from Florida to be with you, you know. Didn't think much of it. But remember, Israel will fit inside Lake Erie. Hello? Yeah, you can take the nation of Israel and put it in Lake Erie. Everything is really close together. It is only five miles from the Temple Mount, which still exists today, to the Shepherd's Fields, which still exists today. For for those of us, uh, my background comes from here and so forth, for those of us who are used to walking everywhere, we call that just a wee stretch of the legs, right? So in the morning, they walk five miles down to Bethlehem. They have lunch, select two lambs, select two lambs, that afternoon, they walked them back. It's only five miles, right? They took two lambs because they wanted to be sure they had one perfect lamb. If one was found to be defective, it was rejected, the other one taken. If they were both perfect, they threw lots, but they wanted to be sure they had one perfect lamb. And on Sunday, the 10th day of Nisan, the people selected lamb, Jesus Christ. Four days later, they said, he's perfect. Slay that one. And on the 14th, they would do the following. Two illegal trials... They would condemn him about 6 a.m. in the morning. He'd be nailed to the cross at 9 in the morning. In the middle of the day, it turns dark. He dies at exactly 3 p.m. in the afternoon after being on the cross for exactly 6 hours. Now, what's the number 6 dealing with in the Bible? Number of man, right? And so after 6 hours on the cross, he dies. That means that we're 3 hours left for his body to be taken down and placed into a tomb that already existed to be interred in the ground. Hello? Remember that this is still common practice today. In the Middle East, people are today still most often buried on the day of death. And they knew it was going to happen. They had, well, at least a nine-hour warning to get a stone cutter to extend the tomb slightly. Uh, but they knew it was going to happen. And they had the tomb already prepared. And within three hours, they take the body off the cross, put it in the tomb on the 14th. Now let's think, what happens next? Well, that evening the moon rises, it becomes the 15th. Next day is the 15th. Next evening the moon rises, it becomes the 
16th. Next day is the 16th. On Saturday night, the moon rises. It becomes the 17th. And on Sunday morning, about 6 a.m., the 17th day of Nisan, the women were privileged to discover the resurrection. Hello? Okay, now look, folks. I told you, even a Baptist would say amen. I, I have just shown you the ark came to rest. They walked through the Red Sea. They had the first fruits of the promised land. Christ rose from the dead on exactly the same day of the calendar, spread out over 2,500 years of time. Anybody here see the hand of God at work? We can prove God exists, that he's actively working throughout human history, that he can bring events to occur at any time he chooses to do so. Amen? You see, this kind of study is a tremendous vindication of our faith. We can prove that God does exist, that he's actively working throughout human history. This kind of a study is a tremendous vindication. But God has a theme, different theme, but he has a theme for every single one of the major and minor feasts. And just to quickly give you another one, the ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av in Hebrew. It normally occurs around the 1st of August. This year it will be the 1st of August, but it always occurs right around that time of the year. Well, it's the worst date in Jewish history. It's the day the ten spies came back from the Promised Land and the people believed them, causing them to have to spend another 38 and a half years in the desert is the day in 586 B.C. that Nebuchadnezzar's army destroyed the first temple of Solomon. It is exactly the same date in the year 70 the Romans destroyed the second temple of Herod. One year later, in the year 71, it's the date they cleared the Temple Mount, fulfillment of two Old Testament prophecies and one by Jesus. It is the day in the year 135 that they lost the battle at Baitar and the nation of Israel ceased to exist, beginning in the Diaspora. It is exactly the same date that King Edward I. How many of you remember a movie about Sir William Wallace called Braveheart? Anybody remember Braveheart? Well, Sir William Wallace, that was his story. And, well, I want you to think about that. That's Edward I, the English king in that movie. Edward Longshanks, as he was called by nickname, but that's Edward I. He kicked the Jews out of England on the 9th of Av. And in 1492, it was the date chosen by the Spanish Inquisition to kick the Jews out of Spain. It's also the date Columbus sailed heading west to India to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to India. And he would find the New World. But all those things, remember that, that Columbus was a Christian missionary. Catholic agreed, but he was a Christian missionary. But all of those events I've just told you occurred on exactly the same day of the calendar, spread over 4,000 years of human history. Anybody here see the hand of God at work? This kind of study is a real vindication of our faith. We can prove God exists. And the next time somebody says, well, if you could just prove he exists, I'd be willing to believe. You say, well, here, let me show you. Hello? This is just one of many tools for evangelism, but it's a strong tool. I hope you've seen that. Well, I want to thank you all if I can help you back there. But we do have a DVD that's full length. This is not the entire teaching. And we have a book on the feast. I just taught a page and a half out of 140 pages. So <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to have the ushers come, if you guys will, uh, Richard and 
We just—I want to pass an offering today. But while you're thinking about what it is that you would sow into this ministry, because we just don't give. The Bible says, "Give and it shall be given unto you." Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Men will give into your bosoms. We don't give to receive, but there is a principle that when you do give, you will receive. I believe that if your heart is right. So today, as you as you give, and we sow into this, I like it that we're we're sowing into this. And what we began to teach and believe God last year at our bountiful offering was, what are you believing God for? That there's something we are believing God for, whether that's a salvation of a loved one, uh, a healing issue, health issue, financial, whatever that may be, that we can begin to believe God for that. In your, uh, as um. Uh, let me just pray over this, and then you give as the Lord leads. You know the cool thing about asking for an offering? Because a lot of times people are like, years ago, I was afraid to ask, and now I don't mind asking because it's not for me. It's for what God wants to do through the kingdom through Dr. Grady. And one of the other things is I also wanted to give him enough time to get back to his table back there to be able to, to be prepared for you guys. Begin a study. Start now. We are in a new era. And I was thinking about what's in our flyer here, um, our handout that we gave you, was the vision of changing a culture for Christ. Creating an atmosphere where people encounter God's love and are empowered to love God, love themselves, and love others. Helping people discover their identity and full purpose as sons and daughters of God. And building life-giving relationships that impact family, community, and the world. And us receiving the knowledge and then God bringing in the revelation of what he's involved in. How many of you know God's involved in everything? Hello? He's involved in everything. And then when we begin to step into that, our goal is to be able to encourage your spiritual growth. And this is one of the things that we directly on purpose wanted to do was to bring him here to help encourage your spiritual growth in this area. So let's just pray. And you ask the Lord what it is that you would have to give. Father, we just are listening to you, Holy Spirit, that you uh, share with us what it is that we need to give today. And God, we just be obedient to that. And we say that you've given seed to the sower and that we are sowing. And we're sowing in good ground for Dr. Grady, for his ministry for the nations that he's been in. And God, we just ask your blessing now upon that in Jesus' name. Amen. Justin, if you'll just play something and you give as the Lord leads.
Amen. Will you guys stand to your feet today? Let's give the Lord some praise for this information. Amen. If you're like me, you're like your brain. You're wrapping it around. Uh, it, it, it's, it's wonderful. This, um, this gift that we have among us, and it is truly a gift among us. You know, there's times where it's like, wait a minute, I'm still thinking about that. You know, there, there's many of you that, are, that God will continue to release that revelation upon you throughout this week. Um, tonight, we're going to start right directly at 6.30, so don't be late. Get here about um, 6.15 or whatever if you want to. Get your bottle of water, cup of coffee, and let's be ready to start at 6.30 tonight. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for today, for the information. Wow, what an amazing thing today, even as we digest this today, God. God, help us be full. Give us revelation of that which you talked about. Encourage us to go back and reread the scriptures and begin to see those things that come clear. And God, I know that you will reveal those things to us. We are children of God with the revelation of our Father and who he is and the creation that you've created. And all things are done in for a purpose and for a reason. So, Father, we just bless you today. We thank you to, for today. And we just bless what's going to take place tonight in Jesus' name. And we said amen. If you need prayer today, we do have prayer for you. Come by and let us pray for you. God bless.